Matthew 22 and verse 1 says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants telling, saying, Tell them which were bidden, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all the things are ready, come to the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise, and the remnant took the servants of the king and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then said he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not a wedding garment. He had not on a wedding garment. And the king said to him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That verse could also be translated, for many are invited, but few are submitted. Jesus, there's nobody who talks to my heart like you do. And so God, I I know it's going to be my voice that these folks are hearing today, but nobody can talk to them like you can. So I yield my voice to you, Jesus. Help me to say only what you want me to say and not anything extra or additional from my flesh, Lord Jesus. Help me to be a vessel that's usable in your sight, God. Help our ears to hear. Help our hearts to hide these things away, Lord Jesus, and let our lives be changed because we are submitted to your word. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You may be seated. I want to talk about by invitation only today. By invitation only. How many of you came to church because you were invited? When you first came to know the Lord, did somebody invite you? I grew up in church. My mom invited me before I could even understand the word invited. Yeah. I was invited by being put in the car seat. If we even had a car seat back then, that was the 70s, so who knows? God is a God of invitation. He's a God of invitation. He's not going to force anybody to follow him. He's a God of invitation. And Jesus was truly the greatest storyteller who ever walked the earth. 
He talked and taught in parables and stories that illustrated kingdom principles so that the people who were listening to him would have a frame of reference for these great eternal truths that he was imparting to them. They only knew the life that they were living. And so he used stories from the life that they were living to help them understand what he was teaching to them. His stories brought knowledge and understanding to those who were hungry to hear of his truth. And his disciples asked him one time, why, why do you use parables? Why don't you just say it? Why don't you just speak what you mean? And he says, look, I, I want you to understand these stories. This is for you, my followers, my believers. You get the right to understand the stories. But this is a mask of truth so that those who are not true seekers don't have an understanding of what I'm really saying. Faith matters in understanding the word of God. And even now, if you look at Middle Eastern culture, that's, that's where Jesus was teaching, was Middle Eastern culture. They believe in indirect communication. And so oftentimes they will feel like Americans are kind of rude because we're very direct. We say what we mean. Most of the time. Most of the time. We're very clear. We, we speak the truth very clearly. And in, in a, a lot of Asian cultures, a lot of Midwestern cultures, they sort of mask the truth in a story. Or to get that person to admit the truth, rather than accusing them of something, they will ask questions so that that person has an opportunity. Jesus did this. If you read through scripture, Jesus took that approach. Um, if you look at even when Adam and Eve were in the garden and Adam said, or, you know, Adam, Adam had sinned and he covered himself and God said, who, who told you you were naked? It's not because God didn't know. It's because he's giving him an opportunity instead of accusing him, it's giving him an opportunity to speak the truth of what happened and also an opportunity to repent for it. And so Jesus is using indirect communication to communicate kingdom truths. And he says that the kingdom of heaven is like this king. And those who were present in his culture would have understood what a king was. We don't have a king. We have presidents who want to be kings sometimes. But we don't have a king. We have a divided government that all work together to govern the people. And so they would have had a different understanding than us of this story. This king is going to throw a wedding for his son. Now, you also have to understand what a marriage celebration looked like in that time. Because it doesn't look like what it looks like today. Today we throw one big party on one big day, and it can be, you know, 10 people from your closest family, or it can be 10,000 people, depending on your level of status in society, right? It's variable, and it can be, you know, $1,000, on, on, really on the, uh, I don't want to say cheap, because that's how I would do it, but on the low end, or you can spend $25,000, $50,000 on a wedding day if you want to. It's, it's optional. It's this variable situation. In, in biblical times, most of the time, it followed the same pattern. First of all, you don't get to pick who you marry. Marriages were arranged for you by your parents. 
Now, you got to give assent at the end of like, okay, yeah, this person seems tolerable, I can try. Hopefully you feel a little better, a little more passionate about that than just tolerable, but it's arranged, and so you give your consent as the person being married, but at the same time, it's really up to your parents and your family. So the families come together, and now once you've given your assent, you are betrothed. You're no longer free. It's a little more intense than an engagement in the sense that this is not something that's easily broken off. A verbal contract has been entered into. And so this, this uh, uh, procession of events starts with this arrangement and goes to the betrothal, and that betrothal becomes a time of negotiation where the bride price is negotiated. See, at that point, that woman's work was being taken from one family and given to another family. All the value of what she could do in the household, everything she brought to her family in terms of her ability to contribute to the household was being given somewhere else, and so the, the husband or the groom's family had to pay for the privilege of this woman joining their household. See, husband wasn't going to move in with wife. Wife was going to move over and live with husband's family. And so this bride price was agreed on, and they were promised to each other. And there would come a day after the husband had built a space for his wife in his father's house, which should sound familiar, after the husband had built a space for his wife in the, husband, in, the, in the husband's father's house, he would go and get his bride and his groomsmen would carry her through the streets on a litter. She would be bedecked in her finest array and they would be singing traditional bridal songs. This became a community celebration and she's paraded through the streets until she gets to her new in-law's house and there's a party thrown that night. And it's a significant party. And there are games and there's uh, traditional dances that they would do and things that they would do to celebrate. And as that bridegroom continued to party into the night, the bride and her bridesmaids would be stolen away to a special space allotted to them for the night. And they would spend that night waiting for the knock of the bridegroom to let them know when the wedding was going to start. This should sound familiar. The bride and her bridesmaids waiting, waiting on the groom. It's time. The wedding's going to start. They're waiting. And that next morning when the groom would let the bride know it was time, there was a great feast early in the day. And everyone who had assembled would be uh, giving their gifts to the bride and the groom. And then the ceremony would happen. And at that point, a five-day celebration began. You thought yesterday's party was good. Now it's going to be almost a week long. And this whole thing takes seven days. And in that five days, bride and groom go away. They're, they're done with their part. It's just the partiers and the guests that are there. And this is a community where uh, you always 
have to honor the people who deserve honor in your community. So you're inviting everybody. You can't leave anybody out. In an an honor-shame culture, you would shame your neighbor if you didn't invite them to the wedding. So everyone who's anyone is there. And it's up to the groom's father to provide for their every need for seven days. Their food, their drink, a garment to wear to the wedding. The bride's uh, family is part of the guests, but the responsibility of payment rests on the groom's family. And so let's just talk about what this parable means. Obviously, the kingdom of heaven is talking about this eternal kingdom, this ongoing celebration. See, he likens heaven to a celebration. To a par- Heaven is not a place where angels sit on clouds and pluck on harps. I don't care what Hallmark says. Heaven is a celebration of God and who he is and our relationship to him, and nobody's going to get bored sitting around heaven. It's a party. It's a celebration. Yes, it's a celebration that we made it, but look where we made it. We made it to the presence of God. We're never going to have to be surrounded by sin ever again. I'm never going to be sick in my body. I'm never going to struggle with paying the bills. I'm never going to go through the trials and tribulations that I'm going through right now ever again. And I get the amazing privilege of being in the presence, the pure, unfiltered presence of the one who shed his blood for me and paid the bride price so that his church could be saved. It's a party. And the bride will be there as we all gather together as the church And as individuals, we are the guests that get to attend. I know I'm talking about the father and the son. Some people get a little uncomfortable. But this is the king and the Christ. This is not two two members of a a God, a, a, a trinity, so to speak. This is the king who came in flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh and he dwelt among us. And during the time that he dwelt among us, he died for us. That body that Jesus Christ wore on this earth died. And Acts 20.28 tells us that God bought us with his own blood. So there's no confusion. This parable is not showing two persons, but instead how God chose to pay the bride price for his church. And some would say that that was the highest point, the apogee of the whole biblical narrative, Calvary. But according to the word of God, the highest point actually came 50 days later on Pentecost when the spirit of God took up residence inside of mankind 
because now the bride price has been paid and that level of intimacy and restored relationship could now be allotted to mankind. See, Jesus came to save that which was lost. It does not say he came to save those who were lost. He came to save that which was lost. What was lost at, at, at Eden? What was lost was perfect communion and relationship. And Jesus came to restore perfect communion and relationship to people. And it happened for the first time at Pentecost. So in, in this parable, verse 3 says the king sends his servants to call those who were bidden to the marriage. The king had already created an invitation list. And we know looking back through history that this invitation to participate and rejoice in a covenant was offered first to one man, to a man named Abraham. And it was offered to the Jewish people through his lineage and through the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. It continued, and this word bidden, those who were bidden to the marriage, the amplified version actually says, and he sent his servants to call those who had previously been invited to the wedding feast, but they refused to come. They'd previously been invited. This offer was already on the table, and they would not come. They refused to come. And the king sends his servants again to the same people. Urgently, he sends forth other servants saying, tell them that are invited. Behold, I, I prepared my dinner. Everything's already on the table. We're ready to get this seven-day marriage started. But they made light of it. They went their ways and one to a farm and one to his merchandise. They didn't take the king seriously. They were intent on living their everyday life. Just doing the work. Just showing up to life as they knew it. And they didn't attend the wedding. Remember how shameful this would have been. They were shaming the king in refusing his invitation. To not attend the wedding of a neighbor or particularly a loved one put shame on them. And you also brought shame on yourselves in doing so. So this parable is hitting that culture just a little bit differently. It's shocking that someone would not accept such a valuable invitation. So those who didn't make light of it, those who didn't go their own way, the remnant took the servants of the king and made fun of them and treated them spitefully, mocked them, and even killed them. Those who did not respond to the king's invitation went above and beyond to make it known to the king that they didn't think very much of him or his offer. They killed the messengers. 
But when the king heard of that, he was angry. And he sent forth armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And we know that this references the judgment that was poured out on Israel through both the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities toward the end of the Old Testament. And then something shifts. And the invitation list changes. In verse 8, he says, The wedding's ready. Those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the highways. And as many as you find, no matter who they are, no matter what their background is, no matter where they find themselves today, you go invite them to the marriage. See, the marriage is still by invitation only, but now the invitation list has grown exponentially as Gentiles and Jews both are added to the invitation list. So the servants went out to the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And God had opened it to whosoever will. And the king comes to the dinner. This is the amplified version. He sees a man who was not dressed appropriately in wedding clothes. Remember, the, the clothes were provided by the father of the groom. Everyone in attendance was given the right thing to wear. And he says, friend, how did you come in here without wearing the wedding clothes that were provided for you? He couldn't have gotten it. See, this was his invitation. You know, you go to a wedding that's high security, you got to present your invitation. This wedding garment was his invitation. It was his proof that he belonged there. So he couldn't have got it, gotten in without it. And yet, in the middle of the feast, he had set it aside. He had cast it off. He was no longer wearing it. And the king confronts him, not with, you scoundrel, not with you thief and robber. No, he, he had to come in the right way. And says, he says, friend, friend, why aren't you wearing the garment I gave you? Where's your invitation? The man was speechless and without excuse. This is the same thing that, he, that, that the Lord did to Adam. Adam, who told you you were naked? It's giving this opportunity for explanation and repentance. Friend, how is it that you are here at the wedding without the right clothes on? Revelation 16 and 15 says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that keepeth his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Blessed is he that keepeth his garment. It's one thing to put the garment on. Everybody's got to put the garment on to come to the wedding. 
It's another thing to keep that garment. Jude 23 says we should keep our garment unspotted from the world. We have a responsibility not just to accept the garment, but to keep it. And because he did not keep his garment and because he was speechless and without excuse and without repentance, the king said, look, get him out of here. Maybe he belonged here once, but he doesn't belong here anymore because he will not wear the garment that was provided by the king. And then he goes on and says, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And the distinction between being called or invited and being chosen in this context is based on submission to the king's wishes. It's based on obedience to what the king has designed and desired. It's based on being continuously clothed in the garment that the king provided. So that's the parable. And out of all the truth that we just went over, what I really want you to remember is that those who were bidden were not forced. Nobody put, you know, a bow and arrow to their head. Nobody had a spear and said, hey, I'll run you through if you don't show up to this wedding. They were invited. God is a God of invitation. He's a God of invitation. Many are called. It's exactly the same word. Many are invited. Many are invited, but few are obedient. A lot of people want to crash the party, to be present for the supper and the blessings. They might even want the garment for their own use. But few are those who come and say, God, no matter what it makes me look like, no matter what you ask me to wear, no matter how you ask me, to live, I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to be submitted to your wishes. Few are chosen. God is a God of invitation. He invites people. He invites people into relationship with him. Come. Come on. He invites people to trade burdens with him. Come, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This garment is light. It's easy to wear. In fact, in the eyes of the Father, it makes you look perfect. I need to understand that there, there is nothing that I bring to the party that's superior to his garment. Anything that I can wear of my own origin is filthy rags in comparison to his righteousness and his covering. And yet he invites me.
why don't you take advantage of what I'm offering you? Why don't you come and give me that sin-stained garment you've been trying to live in? And let me give you one that's wider than any fuller can make it. He invites people. You need healing? Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. He's a God of invitation. I'm not going to force you to come and get prayed for. If you're sick, you want to stay sick, it's your choice. You want to you let somebody else heal you? That's your choice. You want to let the doctors do it? That's your choice. But his invitation still stands. His invitation still stands. He does not make us comply with his wishes. We are invited. I know I'm belaboring this point, but somebody needs to hear me today. Nobody forced you to be here. God is inviting you to a relationship with him. He's inviting you to dress in the most beautiful garment of holiness that you've ever seen, to be like him, to align to his wishes. You know, to receive an invitation in itself is a privilege. How many of you have neighbors that like to barbecue outside in the summertime? And you can stand in your yard all day long and smell the hamburgers and the brats and the pork steaks and the barbecue sauce, the steak. And when that neighbor pops his head over the fence and says, hey, you want to come over? We got plenty. Yes, sir, I do. It's a privilege to be invited. It's a privilege to be invited when your friend is throwing a birthday party and you know that all of your mutual friends will be there and you know that they're going to have Mexican food because a birthday party is not a birthday party without nachos. And the cake's on the table and about to be cut and they make sure you have your invitation weeks in advance because they want you to be present. That's a privilege. It's a privilege when Jesus says, hey, why don't you steal away from what's distracting you right now and just spend a little time in my presence? It's a privilege when the king says, you're invited to the party. Don't miss it. I want everybody to be there. I'm going to provide everything that you need to have a good time at this party eternally in heaven. Just, just, just wear the garment. Keep it. Keep it, lest your shame be revealed to those around you because you've uncovered yourself. Let's all stand. It's a privilege to go to prayer. It's a privilege to read the written word of God. It's a privilege to be 
in church today? God forbid we ever get to the point where I say I have to go to church. I get to go to church. I don't have to pray. I, I get to pray. I don't have to read this word and let it make my life much better than I could ever make it myself. I get to do that. It's a privilege. It's a privilege ministry. It's a privilege to teach, to preach, to exhort. It's a privilege to prophesy. It's a privilege to evangelize. It's a privilege to work in missions. It's a privilege to witness to somebody and share your testimony of what God has done for you. It's a privilege. I get to. I don't have to. But he lets me. It's a privilege to baptize somebody in the water. It's a privilege to pray with people as they receive the Holy Ghost. It's a privilege to clean the church. It's a privilege to take out the garbage after a fellowship. It's a privilege to do the dishes in this house. It's a privilege to serve. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Why? Because his presence here, his presence is here. And I'm serving him. I'm not serving the people who I look up to in this church. I'm serving the Lord. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege to use my voice to praise him. It's a privilege to speak his name with the knowledge of who he is. I don't have to. He invites me to. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. You're invited. You're invited. And I don't know your walk with God. Some of you may not have ever accepted an invitation from the Lord. First, he invites us to believe, to stir up that little grain of faith that he's put in us, to believe. And as we believe, we start to see the distinction between a holy God and a fallen human nature. We say, God, I'm sorry that I have lived out what this flesh has desired. That goes against your word. I'm sorry for everything I've done that displeased you. Will you forgive me? And will you help me not to live that way anymore? I'm going to change my direction from walking in the direction of sin to walking in the direction of God and his holiness becoming more and more like you every day, Lord. And I'm going to go down in the waters of baptism in obedience to the word in the name of Jesus so that all of those sins, the residue of everything I've done can be washed away from my life and I can come out of that water like a resurrection into new life. And I'm going to search and seek to be filled with the Spirit of God so that I can be in perfect communion and relationship with him every day.
when he fills me, I'm going to experience something miraculous as he takes control of my speech and I begin to speak a language I've never learned before. It's the first initial confirmation that I've received the Holy Ghost. God never wanted you to doubt it. He never wants us to question our salvation. He gives us a clear sign. You're saved. You're filled. You're ready. There's always a sound at salvation. So that is the invitation. And then to continue to keep the garment. This is discipleship. This is living a committed life. It's not enough to just come into the wedding and have the garment. I've got to wear it and keep it. Continuously. Every day. Because when the bridegroom knocks, I want to be ready to answer that door. I want to be ready. It's time, it's time, it's time. I come as a thief. Blessed are those who keep their garment. The king is here. the invitations on the table and he has sent me as his servant today to beckon you to call you to bid you to invite you to come what's your response going to be what are you going to do will you accept his invitation. Will you respond? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time. I don't know how many altar calls you've been through, but I know that I resolved when I was a young woman, I was never going to let an altar call go without responding if I could help it. Why? Because I don't know when he's coming. He's a thief in the night and I've got to keep my garment. Oh. oh, King, let my garment be pleasing to you today. First and foremost, let my garment please you. Let me be unspotted from the world. You've washed me. You've cleansed me. You've forgiven me. Help me to wear this garment and honor you. Would you, where you are in this altar, would you find a place to pray? Take some time to examine the garments that you're wearing. The spiritual garments, are they clean? Are you ready? Is it the garment he gave you? Or are you wearing filthy rags in his presence because you're trying to do it all by yourself? I've been there. I've shown up to the party in rags because I was trying to do it all by myself. I can't make myself clean enough. I need his garment. 